Okay, uh, the second half, what we're going to do is look at the domestic movements that were taking place in that transition between the 18th to the 19th centuries. We looked at uh, that foundation of the First Great Awakening uh, by Whitfield and Edwards and uh, how the, the preaching of the gospel really took hold and, and found its root in, in good soil and, and lasted for uh, a couple of years and spread throughout uh, different towns uh, in that region. Uh, the impact was felt for years and uh, even th throughout the 1700s there, were, there continued to be pockets of revival both in the north and the south in the, the eastern cities as well as more in the, the frontier and when we talk about the frontier during this time period it's Kentucky, Kansas, you know, western New York, those type of, of frontier boundaries. Uh, so with that foundation laid, uh, we saw the onset of the revolution. War came to America, and uh, we already talked about how focus of the Americans shifted from uh, God and church and religion being primary in their thoughts to liberty and independence and politics uh, taking the forefront. Uh, and that second bullet point there is, is coming from my own opinion and I'd like to listen to some of you maybe uh, after after tonight's study or after uh, the next class when we look at the 18th century too where there's a, an additional uh, awakening or revival uh, I almost get the sense that if you can believe it God knows what he's doing <laughs> that before every major war he sends revival we saw it with the great awakening prior to the revolution we see it in the Second Great Awakening just prior to and throughout the War of 1812. And next class we'll see it again right before the Civil War. Uh, but since then, mass revival has been elusive. And uh, we'll probably, I've got a few quotes that hopefully I'll be able to pull up without disrupting the, the view of the slides uh, that we can really relate to in praying for that revival to come. And um, if you remember, just about every historian and theologian has his own definition for what revival is, but they all boil down to the same thing, that God abundantly blessed the normal means of grace. What were those normal means of grace? Uh, it's those ordinary things that sometimes we take for granted. It's actually the very things that we talked about in the Sunday service and that we'll continue to, to learn about the preaching of the Word with a focus on the cross of Christ. Uh, the sacraments. Uh, we, there is a real spiritual union and communion uh, among the saints with Christ uh, as we participate in baptism and the Lord's Supper. Prayer. Uh, some have said that God doesn't answer prayer with revival, but when God's people pray, that is revival. Uh, it's those normal Christian disciplines from within the church that God blesses, and He blesses abundantly. And that's what happened, and that's what we're going to take a look at now. Uh, after a war, after the war, there was a renewed interest in international evangelism, so we looked at the foreign aspect of, of uh, the aftermath, and now we're going to look at the, the Great Awakening, which is the domestic here on the, in the States, what happened uh, with the revival where now war has uh, subsided and there were those pockets of, of revival uh, north and south and we're going to see a movement now where God has a sustained period of, of uh, bringing mass numbers of people to himself. And it took on two waves or, or two fronts. The first being in the, uh, the east which uh, took up root in the universities. Timothy Dwight there, you see, from Yale, he was the president at Yale, was actually Jonathan Edwards' grandson. And as his grandson and president of Yale, he had a tremendous impact uh, on the spiritual life of Yale campus. Uh, I believe it was said that at his time when he came on board, 14 people 
in the university were said to profess Christianity. I can't remember the time or, or the number when he was uh, finished serving there, but it had multiplied greatly. Uh, the, uh, and again, it, it wasn't just Timothy Dwight. It wasn't just Yale. There was several colleges, universities, seminaries in that northeast region around the, uh, the, the cities, the more uh, urban environment that, that really took root. And, it, and the students are the ones who picked this up and ran with it. It was very Calvinistic in its nature, nature where it, it was robust in its theology of uh, the doctrines of grace. Uh, and it was non-emotional. It was very similar to what you would imagine uh, a Puritan or Pietistic uh, service being back then. Uh, Jonathan Edwards did this. Timothy Dwight did this. Uh, other uh, Reformed preachers did this where if they saw an outburst of, uh, or an abundance of emotion, they would pause and tell everybody to calm down and once they calmed down, only then would they continue with the sermon. That, uh, that sort of thing wasn't becoming uh, a Christian service. And, and God used that. I mean, he wants our emotions, our spirit, and our mind, and our body. He wants all of us. But when that becomes a distraction, we always need to come back to the Word. And we, we worship with the, both in spirit and truth. It's always that balance, isn't it? Mm -hmm. You know, you can go to way too much intellectual, you know, way too much emotional. It's just very, like you say, it's the whole man that God wants. God is so, the creation, everything in the universe is so symmetrical. <laughs> and same with us, but it gets easily, very, things get out of order quickly. We're not careful. You, you kind of think, you hear the pendulum. I always think of the pendulum. It can swing too far to the left or to the right, and, and we have to have a, a dampening effect that brings us back to the, the straight and narrow and where the truth it. is. And acknowledge we're going to go sometimes. Yep. You know, it's going to happen. We've changed, haven't we? I mean, all mm. of us, we, our ideas and thoughts and theology and practices, they move. Yep. So that was the Eastern Front, it began in the universities. On the Western Front, again, this is uh, more rural. This is the frontier, uh, as it was known at that time. Uh, less sophisticated, if you want to put it that way, uh, because there were a lot of uh, hard workers, lower class, lower class uh, frontiersmen. So the, uh, the revival took on that culture. Uh, it was not as robust in its theology. Um, Perhaps the vocabulary needed to be brought down to the, the average man's um, grasp. Uh, they didn't get as deep into doctrine and theology, but they simply preached the word, and so people were converted. But along with those conversions, there were those who were, took advantage of the situation uh, for not just playing religion, but actually for a good time. I mean, they didn't have HBO or, or anything like that back then. They, they gathered together and took these religious camp meetings as opportunity uh, to have their, their worldly fun as well. So the two kind of coincided or you know, they, they dwelt in the same um, circumstances. Cane Ridge, you see there, is a location, I believe, in Kentucky. Uh, in 1800, a pastor named McGreedy, I believe he actually started in North Carolina and had some, some moderate success, if we want to call it success. God was using him as a tool of revival here in the South. It was, uh, I think it was over uh, near Asheboro, that area. I think you're right. Uh, he was a Presbyterian pastor here in the South, and he moved out to Kentucky. And uh, actually what happened at Cane Ridge uh, and the ensuing camp meetings actually began as a Presbyterian uh, communion. Uh, the, the Presbyterian church at that time, and they may still do this, I'm not sure, only took uh, the Lord's table once a year. So he would travel to his presbytery and to his congregants and uh, you know, gather them together to take communion. And this caught on with more than just the Presbyterians. I don't know that anyone around that area at that time would, would link themselves to any particular denomination. Uh, but that's how it started. Uh, 
and it grew because you had people interested both in the gospel and in social life. Uh, it was, there was one quote by someone who was an eyewitness there that said there were as many souls begotten as there were saved during these, these uh, camp meetings. Uh, so that, it, it, it turned out as an extended camp meeting where they would just set up a tent and stay. Uh, I believe uh, Tommy Nelson, if you listen to some of those the audio tapes, he talked about um, preachers every hundred yards setting up a, a log, standing on top of it for their pulpit and preaching. So this is, this is reaching thousands within a very small region. So the first Great Awakening associated log cabin revivals associated with it, this log stump revival. <laughs> <laughs> that works. And uh, because of the, the environment that it was in, it took on, it took on um, both theologically it was more Arminian, but as well more enthusiastic. And correct me if I'm wrong, but the root of enthusiasm, and meaning in or inside of, and theos, uh, is the idea that God is within you. And in some respect, we would agree that, yes, God is, is in us. Uh, but when we speak about enthusiasm in regards to uh, reaction to preaching, that uh, this was more of a uh, physical phenomena, believing that God was, in fact, uh, communicating in non-normal means, where we see uh, Jonathan Edwards talking about our affections are awakened <clears throat> and we have a desire for God and, and the Word of God and the things of God whereas enthusiasm more or less sought uh, effect, uh, emotion, uh, just an outworking. It's, sometimes it's reasonable, you know, shouting, standing up, being uh, seen. Uh, other, other things, it's, it's very unspiritual where they they were just, uh, I don't know how to barking, explain it. Barking, barking and, and just things like that, dogs. Yeah, things that have no place. There's no grounds for it in Scripture. There's no reason for it in the orderly. Uh, you know, God is a, a God of order and, and not of chaos. But that's the, the nature. The, the two dwelt together in that area. So the, what, the theme that we're going to see throughout this session is there what you see at the bottom. Theology impacts methodology. What you believe will determine how you behave. It will occasionally happen in reverse that your behavior molds your beliefs, uh, as we'll, we'll get to in just a moment. Uh, but uh, theology impacts methodology. So that's what we're going to e examine this evening. Wow. Take a look at that. Okay, if I were to ask all of you, before preparing for tonight's class, how many of you have heard of Azahel Nettleton, who, would, who could raise their hand, honestly? Not, I couldn't. If you were to ask me a month ago, I, I couldn't answer that. I, I'd never heard of him before. Now, if you have heard the name Charles Finney, raise your hand. That's, that's almost everyone. Uh, I won't venture to guess what you've heard is good or bad, but we're going to take a look at so, what he believed? Well, Neil, I think we can see what you think. I mean, this picture, <laughs> it's kind of like, this is a Fox News picture of Hillary Clinton or CNN's <laughs> picture of, uh, you know, George Bush, George W. Bush. <laughs> Mothers, how would you like those eyes staring back at you? <laughs> Wives, how would you like them? <laughs> well, but we're, gonna, we're not just characterizing him. I mean, he actually posed for this. Is, that, that's... Finney, but uh, we'll actually see that uh, what he believes uh, looks much scarier. Brad, do you want to take it from here and I will jump in okay, so anywhere and everywhere. All right, you want me to go with uh, Finney or Nettleton or both of them? You, you, you talk about Nettleton and yeah. then I'll talk about Finney. I, I sort of confused myself and, and you a little bit earlier talking about Justin because a lot of these guys had a very similar background, probably similar to some of yours, where you grew up in a Christian home uh, thinking yourself religion, but, but really when you became a teenager, uh, it wasn't your thing. You just wanted not to have anything to do with it. Uh, but at some point in perhaps your adult life, you came to a realization that you know, God is real, what Christ has done 
is real and, and I trust him. And this is the same thing that happened with Nettleton. Uh, he came from an agricultural background um, and his parents were halfway covenanters. Now, if you remember from the days of Stoddard and Edwards, the halfway covenant was you can have your children as infants sprinkled into the church and become church members without ever having professing or showing evidence of Christian faith. Because everybody had to be connected. It was just part of social. That, that was how society. Great, that's exactly. Right. Yeah. So his parents were part of that, and so he was. So again, he was part of a religious, but not very Christ-centered uh, home. So he, uh, here's where he began to do good works, wanting to make himself holy. And he found that uh, that didn't work. Then he decided to uh, just do away with God. If he can't work out his guilt, then he's going to do away with the judge and dismiss his guilt. That did not last because he came to the, the settled conclusion that uh, God is real and, and he must uh, be submitted to. And he came to affirm uh, faith with, to Christ. And actually, Edward's work on the life of David Brainerd played an important role in deepening his faith. And um, at that point, he went to, uh, to, to university, to college. He was a very average student. Uh, but because of his heartfelt desire for the God who saved him, he became a confidant and counselor to his fellow students who would ask, them, ask him to pray for them. And he did. And like our previous missionaries, he had a desire to carry the gospel to foreign lands. He wanted to be a missionary in a, in a foreign country. And actually his uh, friend Mills began a, a, a missions conference where Adoniram Judson attended and he would become the first American foreign missionary. But Nettleton was not able to attend. Yeah, he wanted to be that he first American wanted to be that first missionary. One. But he couldn't even make the conference because of finances. He incurred debt as a student, like many of us do. And instead of I'm going to put the, putting God to the test and doing what he thought he wanted to do, he felt a duty and obligation to his responsibilities. He had debt. He wanted to pay that off. And he was going to, and this is a lesson for us. We can minister in God's kingdom where we are. When we complete the responsibilities that we've been given, then he frees us and opens the door to other opportunities. So that's what Nettleton did. <clears throat> the height of his ministry took place between uh, 1812 and 1822. His preaching style, uh, in some aspects, were very similar to other preachers of the day. Uh, you know, kind of subdued at times, but uh, at times he would also kind of role play. He would take on the character of, of a sinner, an unregenerate sinner, uh, having a conversation within himself yeah. about this gospel. You know, what is this thing about repentance? I don't want to repent. Well, isn't there some other way? And so he would role play like this as part of his preaching in order to very clearly get the gospel across to the, to the congregation, and, and it worked. Yeah, he would start the message like that. He would just walk up and start saying, I, repentance? What is it? I don't... And, and go from there. It's pretty cool. Yeah. It, it's, it's very much what, what many people need to hear. Um, and his, his preaching was very biblical, uh, theological. He had a, it was very theologically robust. He did not shy away from the doctrines of grace. He, uh, he, was, uh, uh, he was bringing uh, Calvin's reformed theology into his preaching, whereas today when we think of revivals, it's very, uh, on the whole, uh, light on theology. But if we're getting the cross of Christ across, that's, that's not a bad that's not Paul said to the Corinthians, I, I, would have no, I would know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified, which is, which is a, a great thing. Uh, but Nettleton did not 
settle for just the starting point. He, he taught the people theology as well as um, grace and faith. He was as mired as Whitfield. Now, if you think of Whitfield, he was the premier evangelist in the previous generation. And there were those alive who heard Whitfield preach and who were just as excited when Nettleton came to town. And coming to town, he would only come to churches where he was invited. He did not invite himself. Uh, he did not set up uh, a tent outside the, the, the town church. He went where he was welcomed and uh, only took the, the previously scheduled regular service. Only after he preached was there so much interest that additional services and ministries uh, were added. Uh, he thoroughly believed in the sovereignty of God, so much so that uh, you'll hear the story if you listen to the, the Borgman uh, audio files that there was a man who was in the church, a member of the church, but did not, he was not saved, did not want to be saved, did not want anything to do with Christ and his religion, uh, but was coerced with spending time with Nettleton. And uh, eventually he wanted to come hear Nettleton preach. And what do you think he did? Nettleton actually said, no, I forbid you to, to come. And how many evangelists can we think of that, that would actually forbid someone from coming to an evangelistic meeting. Uh, so what did this man do? He actually snuck in and set up where no one would see him and he listened to the preaching and, uh, and the conversation there in that, that meeting. And it wasn't long, long afterward that, that he repented and was joyfully converted. Reverse psychology. <laughs> it was. Uh, he was also a meek man. Uh, this is both a positive and a negative. Uh, sometimes our greatest strengths can also be the source of our greatest weakness. Uh, he was very faithful to, uh, to the ministry, to the Word of God, uh, to, to biblical doctrine, and uh, he did not want fame for himself. There was a time actually where a word got out that he was coming to town for an evangelistic crusade, if you want to call it that. and. Uh, he got to the point where he thought, you know, people are coming to hear me, not to hear the gospel. So he simply didn't show up. He didn't go. Um, because again, he wanted Christ to increase and himself to decrease. We'll see in just a few, few minutes how his meekness, his gentleness may have been uh, a negative, or at least had a negative impact. And the, uh, the gospel preaching yielded long-term changed lives. We'll look at a few quotes from contemporaries of both Nettleton and Finney in just a few moments. And uh, basically what we're seeing here is that the faithful preaching of the word, God uses and he regenerates for himself people uh, that he preserves. These saints will persevere. And 20 years later, he went back to some of these uh, churches and the pastors can say, yep, those 84 people that came forward when you came here 20 years ago, they're still, they're still here. They're still faithful. And we see not only from Nettleton, but from the entire Second Great Awakening, that church, not only attendance, but membership almost doubled. Uh, and, and it stayed that way. It wasn't just a temporary thing, but people, they wanted to come to meet together fellowship and hear the gospel of Christ preached. Did you have anything from Nettleton that you wanted to, to add or talk about? Well, one thing, well, I'll, I'll bring it up as a contrast him with Finney. So let's just move on to Mr. Finney. I think if he's, uh, is he up next? He is. Um, well, actually, we're going to look at, I've got a couple of quotes uh, from a contemporary of, of both Nettleton and Finney as well as uh, from a magazine article talking about, and this is the long-term fruit of Nettleton's ministry, or we could say Christ's ministry through Azahel Nettleton. Want to uh, grab these uh, slides off of uh, the Google group and take a look at some of these. We don't really have time to go over them, but 
few things about Finney. Um, he was quite irreligious. He was a, he was a lawyer uh, by education until he had an experience as an adult and joined the Presbyterian Church, was ordained. Um, I don't think it would have mattered to him if he had been ordained by the church or not. Livingston, uh, actually, as charismatic a figure as he had been, he was a very plain preacher, and they almost didn't ordain him. You know, they almost said, nope, we're not going to ordain you. Uh, Finney would have gone without it. It's, it, it's the sort of, Finney embodies the American independent spirit. When I go to Australia, you may have heard me say, the first question always when they find out I'm a minister is, what denomination? And I've learned to say, non-denominational, it's a, an American thing. You know, and they just say, oh, yeah, okay, right. Because there aren't that many non-denominational uh, churches in Australia and really in much, much of the world. Uh, Finney embodies that kind of a spirit. He was a revivalist. An author wrote a book on systematic theology, which, according to Borgman, is neither systematic nor theological. Uh, he was a pastor, also a uh, pastor in Manhattan. It was disaster. College president at Oberlin College in Ohio. Didn't work out. Again, this is coming from uh, Mr. Borgman. Um, Finney is, you can go ahead and hit the next slide. Uh, I'm just going to read some of the notes that I took uh, from, from Borgman's uh, uh, lecture on this. And you can see all of these things now. This may be shocking to you if you've heard what I always heard about Charles Finney. He was a sweetheart of evangelicalism. There is a statue of Charles Finney at Wheaton College. Of all places, Wheaton College. G.K. Beale was there recently. Mm. Uh, it, it, and so uh, a lot of people admire Finney, and you'll see <laughs> how important what he did was to the way evangelicalism operates today and we'll also see some of the some of the drawbacks uh, again Borgman would say it there's no way to calculate the damage that this man has done to the work of God in America now of course God is if God is sovereign then you know he oversees all of that it's all part of the way the gospel moves Nettleton saw the gospel as something that would take care of itself but Exactly like Neil said, that works against him as well as for him. You remember the Calvinist told uh, Carey, William Carey, young man, if God wants these people to be saved, they'll be saved without your work. Well, Nettleton almost takes that approach, but God does this amazing stuff. He preaches, but great crowds come and to, to hear this very ordinary guy. Well, here's Charles Finney, who is anything but uh, boring, he had, in fact, he told someone when he was converted, uh, I can no longer argue your case before the court of, in a court of law. I must argue Jesus' case. I must plead his case. Um, and so quite the lawyer, quite the uh, showman. Um, just imagine, here's a guy that we think so highly of. He denied original sin. He said, you don't pay for Adam's sin. That's ridiculous. You pay for your own sin. We believe that, that we pay for our own sin. But first and foremost, we pay for Adam's sin. That's original sin. That's total depravity. We have no hope of salvation because of who we are in Adam unless the Lord intervenes. He denied justification. Imagine this. Christ obeyed for no one but himself. And look, I'm, I'm taking these from... Uh, Borgman, but I looked it up, and Michael Horton, same thing. It's just uh, his Christian faith, his book on theology. All of this stuff, these are direct quotes from Finney. Uh, all of these, uh, you, you can see, you could probably read those better up here than we can read them back there, especially I'm getting, getting old. Christ obeyed for no one but himself. To say that righteousness can be imputed to you, before I finish that sentence, that's the great exchange, isn't it? My sin for Christ's righteousness. He has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. God looks at us, he sees Jesus when we're saved. Finney calls this gospel fiction. Imagine that. A 
gospel fiction. Uh, regeneration is nothing more, nothing less than a simple act of the human will. One of his most famous sermons. What was Jonathan Edwards' most famous sermon? Sinners in the hands of an angry God. You know what one of Finney's most famous sermons was? The sinner's responsibility to make himself a new heart. Not good. And, um, if, and if you can believe it, evangelists today model their, their ministry after this man. And you can see everything. Look, all of these run together. It's... Uh, Nettleton preaches a great God. Finney preaches the potential of man. Um, just like the philosophers. You know, the, uh, uh, the, the new theologians who are saying God has given us... Well, Finney says we have free will. And because we have free will, we can achieve perfection. We can be totally sanctified. Um, so his idea of revival is it's not a miracle. It's not a sovereign work of God. It's the right use of the right means under the right circumstances producing the right results. Give us that Hudson Taylor quote again. God's work done God's way never lacks God's supply. Finney, revival is um, the right use of the right means under the right circumstances will produce the right results. I don't know if he said that or not, but that was the way he approached revival. His writing on revival was more or less a how-to manual. Just use the right means. So some of his new measures that were up a while ago um, were the anxious bench. Now anxious, it's interesting. You ever notice how people, this was something Linda taught me appropriate on her birthday. I, she'd say, you, you use the word anxious when you really should be using the word eager. You know, I'm anxious uh, to go on this trip. No, you're eager to go on this trip. When you're anxious, that ain't good. You mm -hmm. know, I mean, that's some, something's up. I'm anxious about the doctor's visit. What's he going to tell me after the test that I've taken? Well, anxious was a good word. The difference between Nettleton and Finney, Nettleton... Would recognize when people would get anxious in his meetings, and so we would set up these inquiry meetings, which were usually held in the parlor of someone's home, a large home. They would go to the parlor, and he would talk with them more fully about the gospel, saying, this is what you need to know. Now, this is your, you're all churned up inside, so let me tell you how you can know the peace of God. Well, Finney had anxious benches up front. You know, they would come down and actually sit on the benches and there would be a lot of movement and activity, that kind of thing. He credits himself for being the first to uh, use an altar call. And here's how it happened. Uh, preaching, he was preaching somewhere and people were so stone-faced, he said, all who are against Christ, stay in your seats. So everybody stood up, you know. And then... With them coming forward, you can see how that... Um, and look, that was... When I first came to Grace, I, that was all I knew. That was what I knew. I, I grew up in that. We had altar calls at, at Grace. One time, a couple walked forward and professed Christ. And they had been saved the, the day before. They had trusted Christ the day before, but they walked forward to make their profession public. Do you know person after person after person? Amy Griffin, over and over, I can, came and heard the gospel and sat and listened, and over time they believed. You know, and, and that's the way Nettleton approached it, but it got me out of his control. God did a great work. Finney worked it up. And he was a charismatic preacher, so he would go and say, you need to come forward, and since it's all up to you, you better get forward. You better get forward. How many times did some of you that grew up in a more Baptist background walk the aisles? I did it time and again. Look, I've been baptized four times. I've been under four times. If that'll get you there, I'm first in line. Well, I'm pretty high in it. Not as many Mormons, you know, they go under. But, but I, because I, I was so unsure of my salvation, and it's kind of like, like it's up to me, you know. 
And that's the altar call. And then, and then he introduced the prayer of faith. We still use it, but we call it the sinner's prayer. Now, here's the thing. This is okay. This method is okay. All of, God has used all of these things. The sinner's prayer, um, I think, is a good thing to help people to just to get a hold of it, for them to understand, to get to, to know what God is doing in their lives. But is is this thing, is this is salvation a work of God or a work of man? And you when you start off saying, well of course it's a work of God, but I think that man, you know, has this responsibility and that it very easily gets out of whack. And people move far in far greater numbers from understanding my responsibility to understanding that all of this is the work of God. I used to say, God, I found God. No, he found me. And once I, when I look back, I could get to see it. But you know what? Hardly anybody moves from this side to this side. Well, Finney's over here saying, it's all up to you. Christ died as our example. He did not die. It's ridiculous to say that Jesus died for you, for your justification. You don't hear people saying that. They're sort of a mixture today when, when people follow a lot of Finney's methods, they wouldn't necessarily be tied to his theology. But theology impacts methodology. It does. This is what um, Neil's been talking about. So, look, fin Nettleton wrote Finney letters. He said, look, Brother, you're doing this the wrong way. Let me, let me help you with this. You're, this is God's business, not yours. You're making it your business. And then they decided they were going to have a meeting. Tell us about this meeting, uh, Neil. <clears throat> well, this very informal, friendly meeting came to be known as the showdown at New Lebanon. And that's exactly what it was. Uh, the new... School of Thought, Finney and his uh, followers were being critiqued by those who were called the old school. Uh, they were looked at, uh, the old school was looked at as too formal, too rigid, too slow to change with the times, too dead. They were doing it the old way. Uh, Finney, he's getting results. Yes, and I failed to mention this, but his results were fleeting uh, he expressed great disappointment in years to come that so many of the people that had been converted at his meetings were no longer walking with the Lord. I mean, very small percentages. Now, this is not all. I'm not saying this is genuine. This is, you know, all Presbyterians are genuine. All holy rollers are not. That's not the case. There are a lot of people saved, you know, across denominations. But it, it was very true. It was very striking in this day. Yeah, take but, a look at the the, time, but at the time of this Lebanon meeting, that wasn't the case. Go ahead. You can take a look at the, the, the bottom quote there is one of uh, his co-laborers in the ministry, and, and they were both uh, mourning how short-lived the, uh, the excitement, not, not just the excitement of the congregates, but their... It was like you've said several times, they turned over a new leaf, and they did it in dramatic fashion, but that leaf... Blew right about, right back over again. And it's so it, it's so reminiscent. When I was 18 years old, far from God, the Jesus movement. When if you read about revivals, we'll talk a little bit about that. But the Jesus movement was big in 1970s, early 70s. And I came to Christ, but as I did so, I recognized that a lot of people who were coming to in these revivals were it was very emotional, and it just it wasn't. Genuine, and sometimes I, you know, I look at myself and say, "Was it really genuine for you?" <laughs> uh, but that's, you know, what that's quite the characteristic uh, of a believer. You know, is this, it, the closer you are to God, the, the the more difficult you find yourself to be apart from Him. Finian, on the other hand, saying, "Let's get close to God." So I'm sorry, I keep interrupting. So this showdown took place in 1827, which is towards the end of the career of, of Azahel Nettleton. And at this time, he was uh, dealing with, with chronic health issues. 
And it was also very early in, in Finney's ministry. Uh, so what had happened, we'll take a look at the, the outcome, but Nettleton's role, remember me saying that, we'll look at how his meekness, though a strength of character, can also have a negative impact. Uh, he was quiet and subdued, and he carried that mood into a new Lebanon, and he, was, he wasn't heard from very much at this meeting. And, and the old schoolers were looking to him to sort of lead the charge, lead the critique of, of setting Finney straight back on the, the right track. And when he did not speak up as people felt he should, uh, it was seen as a victory for Finney. Well, if Nettleton is not critiquing him, then Finney must be right. He's okay. But that was theological. I mean, there were theological reasons for Nettleton taking a back seat. Disinterest. This movement, this idea of, I just have to be disinterested. And this is sort of, this is Calvinism gone badly. He said, you know, look, a lot of people said in that day, oh, look, if God sends me to hell, glory be to his name. You know, I, I don't, God can do whatever he wants to do. So again, there's this balance between God's working and our responsibility to do the work of God. The means of, of grace involve us, you know, in what we do and the things that we, we do. Some of the other shortcomings of this meeting is that the, those in the old school failed to rebuke or correct the theology of Finney. Instead, they focused more on the methods, the new measures. And, and when you look at practice, everyone's on equal ground. You can, you can argue practice any way you want, but you have to look at the theology. Look back at what the Bible says, what does it teach, uh, what is the teachings and the practice that we're supposed to carry. And they failed to do that. Um, and so, again, it was seen as a victory for Finney and, and the new measures. And that was the outcome that, uh, to this day, very few people have heard of Nettleton. And almost everyone has heard of Finney. Uh, from that point on, Finney's career continued uh, to increase in popularity as a, a revivalist. He became a pastor. Only lasted a few years. He left the Presbyterian Church. He uh, went on to, to Oberlin and ministered there. And, and just like Brad was saying, I don't want to say that Nettleton was right on everything he did and Finney was wrong in everything he did. We're all influenced from, from good and bad. Nettleton had some issues with, with the disinterest. But Finney did some good, if you want to call it that, on the, the social... Good, God, God did good stuff out of it. I don't know how you can believe that theology and be saved, really. <clears throat> and I'm shocked to think that from what I've learned over the years, but how can you believe? Yeah, and, I, and, and I think Finney's popularity increased until he had that picture, uh, and that <laughs> really hurt him. Uh, the previous slide, we, we did see that... Uh, especially at Oberlin, he took on social and political issues which had good effect. I mean, they, they were abolitionists. Uh, they were for women's rights and all these different things. Right. These are good things, but if you're only treating the political and social issues without giving the reason why, Christ, then you're, you're treating the symptom and not the root cause of the illness. And, and that's what he's known for. Uh, again, we see the, uh, a quote there from one of his companions about the impact, the enduring or lack thereof impact of, of the ministry. Uh, I'm saying this as me, not, not representing anyone else, but I have no problem calling uh, Charles Finney uh, a heretic. If he believed half the things that he wrote or taught, he has put himself outside the Orthodox faith. I would agree with that. So these are some of the lessons that we can learn both for ourselves personally as well as a church locally and the church at large. Theology impacts methodology. You put the two together. Nettleton, his theology and practice was biblical. Finney's was more philosophical. He disagreed with his, uh, his pastor's Presbyterian mentor. He read all the reformers and, and the Puritan books in his pastor's library. And he tossed them out. He disagreed, not because he was convinced otherwise from the Bible, but simply because he didn't want to believe those things. And in fact, it, 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 in a, a, 
an entirely different manner than uh, um, Nettleton, who would be, come only at invitation of a pastor. Um, Finney would go in whether they wanted him or not, and anybody who said anything about him, yeah. he would denounce from the pulpit this fiery and this fiery, this person is an opponent of revival. So, yeah, You see a, a, a difference of heart between the two. Um, Nettleton was faithful to biblical doctrine. Finney was innovative. Uh, well, it depends on how you, did, how you define innovative. He reminds me of another lawyer from Britain from centuries previous. Uh, you might remember Pelagius. Uh, Robert Gottfried uh, talked about Finney saying that at times he makes Pelagius look good. Nettleton was very theological in his evangelism. Finney was emotional. We saw that with enthusiasm, excitement. He wants to build up the emotion. Nettleton was God-centered. Finney, as we heard from his own mouth, uh, very man-centered. And from the ministry of a biblical, faithful, theological, God-centered man, we see lasting fruit where decades later, those very people who confessed, professed uh, faith was still evident to be in the faith. Whereas Finney's, Finney and his cohort uh, mourned the very short-lived fruit where even months later they could go back to those towns and it was as if they were never there. Uh, there, was, there was a lot of ruckus when they were preaching. There was a lot of, uh, it was thought to be a lot of revival. There was a lot of drama but really it was all superficial. You know, it's very easy to make straw man arguments where you, you build a case against your opponent and then it's very easy to knock him down. Hmm. You see that all the time in politics. You see it in theology. Um, this is not a straw man with Finney. I mean, he condemns himself hmm. with his own writings. It's over and over and over. And, of course, his, the fruit... You know, it's one of those things that you can look at here and you can look there and you can make your case and it's not always that way. But once again, the, the evidence is pretty, pretty stacked against Finney. So I'd encourage you to go back and look up these, uh, the passages that I've, I've got there. Each one corresponds with, with a biblical lesson uh, for, for us today, for the evangelists, for uh, biblical revival. Uh, what can we expect from the theology uh, and what will its fruit look like? Uh, we must submit ourselves to the Word of God and to those who are... Uh, there's one I didn't put up there, but uh, Finney very much reminded me, I believe it was when Paul was talking to Timothy, that uh, the pastor must not be, the King James put it, a novice. He must not be new to the faith. Uh, otherwise, he'll be led astray. And, and that's exactly what we see, that Finney, new to the faith, the fruit bears out that he was never in the faith. Some of those other guys we looked at tonight got started fairly early, you know, on, so they were new as well, but more grounded, more connected right. with the body of Christ. Whereas Finney was kind of the lone ranger, yeah. right in and do a big thing, move on. Uh, well, we're out of time. I, I wanted to read a few quotes for you, but I'll post those online. There are actually several articles. I would highly recommend that you read all of them, uh, but since they're published and I had to pay for them, uh, just come see me. I'll, I'll let you borrow them, but I don't want to copy and paste. Uh, so I'll make anything available to you that, that I've come across. Those same chapters that we read this time will be uh, our homework for next time when we look again at the, the 19th century. And if you have any questions, I'm happy to answer after, afterward here. Email me, post them online. I'll be happy to address them. Gonzalez's uh, theological views show up a lot more in the second book than they did the first book. And part of this whole class is teaching us how to be discerning. But it's interesting, he gives very little print yeah. to either um, Awakening. Well, as we close, I'm going to uh, echo the words of Isaiah. Um, I'm sure I don't have the passage quote 100% correct, but uh, we, can, we can echo the same sentiments. that He, he says, 
Lord, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Um, I, I hope and I pray that each of us um, would invite, would put ourselves in the way of God so that he would be pleased to send revival, that he would use us as tools. He would use the normal means of grace in which we participate to bring about revival, both in our local body and for our land. So why don't we pray in that accord. Father God, we do praise you that you are a sovereign and you are gracious. You have all things under your control and all things, whether we like them or not, whether you like them or not, they occur according to your plan. And we thank you for that. We thank you that you have provided your son in our stead, that you have given us your word to uh, guide our practice, that you've given us the spirit in order to give us the willing desire and the ability uh, to perform that, that faith and practice. So Lord, we do pray that you would rend the heavens and come down, visit us, uh, give us the power of your spirit to, uh, to live out the life that Christ has for us, that we would uh, revel in uh, fellowship and prayer in the preaching of the word, in, in sacraments, in, in those things that you have prepared for us, Lord, that we would um, share that amongst ourselves and that it would spread throughout our land, throughout America, that uh, hearts would be changed, that they, we, we would turn back to you. So Lord, if, if these lessons from history can be anything to us, I pray that it would drive us to your word, drive us to your face, that we would uh, seek you. And Lord, as we leave here, I pray that you would guard over us, protect our hearts as well as our minds and bodies, that we would seek right theology in order to practice rightfully, that we would worship you in spirit and truth. And it is in the, the name of Christ and for his sake that we would carry his name abroad that we pray these things. Amen.